0: This this is my very first ever mobile phone. I got it when I was uh, seventeen years of old. Seven years of old, seventeen years of age. I was in my six. Well, my resisted for so long. I'm not what they call an early adopter. I looked at these things. and I was like, I don't want people contacting me at all hours. I don't want to be available to everybody else. I quite like my privacy. But I, I, remember I got it, and it was, it was brilliant. Um, do you know, I became an expert at Snake. Do you remember Snake? Yeah. It was, it was brilliant. And, and I, I used to text my girlfriend for only ten p a text. Do you remember that? During, during lessons, it was. Occasionally, I used it for. <laughs> Occasionally I used it for actual phone calls. Sometimes I'd take a picture and it looked... Do you remember that you take a picture of things for, like, posterity and it looked like the image had been covered in mayonnaise or something like that. But you could kind of work out what was in it as well. It was great, but I loved it, actually. And I was sure it would be with me forever. That is to say, until this bad boy arrived on the market. Does anybody remember this? This was marketed as the invincible phone. You could throw it on the floor, it would bounce, you could throw water on it, I mean you could chuck it at your mate if he was being annoying. And I was like, do you know what? I've got aspirations to be extreme. This is the, this is the phone for me. So this one sadly was gone. And I got a new phone and it was great and it was going to be with me forever. That was until, that was until a new offer came out. It was uh, better off a better offer, better contact, and it was the QWERTY keyboard. Does anybody remember the QWERTY keyboard? It was called a QWERTY keyboard because it spelled QWERTY across the top of the keyboard, and it had all the letters, not just numbers. You didn't have to scroll through to get your text. You could just type your text straight away, and it had email on it. It was amazing. I remember speaking to a techie friend of mine when I got this phone, who started talking about phones that would one day not have a qwerty keyboard. They they had some kind of touché touche screen. I don't know, something like that, that you just touched the screen and it could type it. And I was like, do you know what? That is never going to catch on, mate. I genuinely said that. Just so you just so <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's never, it's never going to catch on. It's never, it's never going to happen. Lo and behold. About six months later, I had one of these phones, and the rest is history. If you want to inspect the rest of my mobile phone history, it's on the table there. Every phone I had since had a touchscreen, and I have constantly updated my phone. I've constantly changed my phone because better contracts have come out, new technologies come out, and I've replaced them mercilessly. Why am I talking to you about my history of phones? It begs a question, doesn't it? Because... I think the mobile phone tells us something about the world we live in today, that in many ways it's become a mobile phone society, a disposable, contract-based society, where we're constantly looking for upgrades and improvements, better deals, where the thing that we loved yesterday becomes the thing that we don't need tomorrow. Uh, And I Don't know about you, but I've come to hate being tied into any sort of contract agreement. My wife will testify to this, but nothing makes me more male grumpy than when it comes to broadband phone insurance renewal time. And I'm asked to be tied down to payments for something for a year, probably now two whole years of my life. And the frustration I have is I know that something better is going to come out in that time. And when I'm in a contract, to be honest, I'm a bit like one of those footballers who doesn't want to play for his team because he wants to get out of his club and contact. I'm trying to find ways to wriggle, to not play, to get myself out of the contract sometimes that I've got into. I'm sceptical of anything that impacts on my freedom to choose. Even if I've made the choice in the first place. And I think, in reality, if you look at parts of our lives, at many aspects of our lives, the mobile contract approach has really started to impact everything around us. Do you know, houses and the areas we live in are not homes and communities anymore. They are the first step on the ladder to something better. I remember watching a comedian who once said, no, you know, I've just bought my first home and I'm going to do something Radical with it, absolutely radical. I'm just going to live in it. <laughs> I'm going to live in it, and he was challenging this idea that your phone was first and your home was first an in investment. Do you know, first it was a home; it was a place to live. He said, "I'm just going to live in it and be satisfied." Jobs work a job for the life. You know, it wouldn't have been too long ago that a job. For life, was actually quite a regular thing, sticking with a company right the way through your whole life. But slowly but surely, that's being ebbed away at. It's more and more a thing of the past. And in Christianity, I've seen it when it comes to church. You know, we can act more like shoppers than family and body sometimes. One foot in, but one eye on the market on the better thing. Rather than graciously being joined in heart to our imperfect brothers and sisters in Christ... As the Bible describes it, we're looking at the, the big shop window. Who's doing what better? Who where can, I, where can I go? And perhaps no place is this more evident, I think, than in our relationships. You know, uh, divorce rates, apparently, they, they're up to their best in 45 years last year, which sounds great, doesn't it, from the Office of National Statistics. They say they now last, on average, marriages 12.5 years in our country. That's a reasonable contract life, isn't it? But even this up that that's gone, most analysts say is because more and, people, more and people are just choosing simply not to get married at all. So it doesn't show the relationship stability rate at all. They're just steering clear of this contract offer altogether, as it's seen as just taking too much freedom away from people. It's just a contract that ties you in too long makes it difficult to find the next better thing when it comes along. You know, there's a place for contracts in our lives. I'm not anti-capitalist, actually. Do you know, I think it's brought some brilliant things to my life. But if our lives become governed by this approach, by this contract approach, then we're really in danger of something as Christians. We're in danger of missing God's heart and who he is. And the magnificent way he works in Jesus. That he is not and has never been a god of the mobile phone contract. And we miss something about how he wants us to live our lives as Christians. In a way that displays his wonderful gospel commitment to one another. And there are loads of places... In the Bible, we see this wonderfully, unbreakably committed heart of God and Jesus to us. But I want to say to you, no more does it come across than in the brief passage that we're going to read today as we kick-start part three of our journey through the Gospel of Mark in this new year. I wonder, would you turn to Mark chapter 10, 1 to 12? This in the final section. We're going to be going from 10 to 16. And we're going to be looking at Jesus' road to the greatest act that God ever did, the cross. And it says this. And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did... Moses, command you. And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And later in the house, his disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. I wonder, have you ever been asked a really high-stakes question? A question where there is a huge amount riding on it? I think about some of the high-stakes questions I've been asked. Usually they're in places like job interviews or exams, where my income, my hopes, my career are all dependent on how I answer it. Which path do I choose? It can be terrifying, can't it, to be asked a high-stakes question? But I want to say nothing I have ever experienced come close to how high stakes the question at the start of this passage in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, is. You see, it looks a bit like uh, a simple harmless dinner time conversation in many ways. My kids are very advanced. (laughs) But it it was not simple or harmless at all. Because of the verse that comes before it, which is this. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered him, him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. You know, this verse kickstarts the whole final section of Mark that we're going to be studying together over the coming weeks. Because until this point, all of Jesus' ministry has been up in this northern place, Galilee around here. We've stepped into the Decapolis for parts of it, if you remember. We've gone up to Tyre in the north. That's the furthest he's been up there. Uh, but now he started his final journey down to Jerusalem, down in the south. He's coming out of his home territories, working around, and Mark groups all of what he did there together in this final section of Mark. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the capital. He's on his way to the seat of David's throne, the place where all of God's purposes in the earth, up until this point, have really been centred. He's on his place to the temple. He's on his place to the core leadership that are running the time. He's on his place to the heart, this troublemaker, this guy who'd stirred up so much, his popular ministry. And what we see in this verse is, en route, he has gone to the other side of the Jordan into this place called Pereira, Perea, Perea, I'll do. And in this place, Perea, with crowds watching on, this is where the question on divorce had been asked. And in this place, this question had the potential to cost Jesus his, his life if he got it wrong. It could have stopped him getting to Jerusalem and the cross, because this question was, in fact, a final attempt by Jesus' critics and enemies to stop him in his tracks before he got to Jerusalem. The region, as I've said, across the Jordan, Perea, was governed by Herod Antipatus, son of Herod the Great, and he governed it on behalf of Rome. And Herod Antipatus had recently had John the Baptist. Beheaded in Mark chapter 6. Why? Because he had publicly criticized him for divorcing his own wife and stealing his brother's wife. This question in this situation was an attempt to draw Jesus out in support of John, to get him to say something that incriminated him in the same way it incriminated John, to enrage Herod, to get him imprisoned and beheaded. So Jesus' life, fulfilment of his ministry, reputation, literally hangs in the balance in his response to this question. I don't know about you, but if I'd been in this situation, I'd have been like to the disciples, come on boys, come on. River's just over there, let's swim in, let's dive in, let's leg it. And what we can do is we can shout back from the other side, I think this, and they can't get us because we're off his turf. That would have been my cunning plan. But there was no sign in this passage of Jesus panicking on running. Instead, he fearlessly and with incredible but simple wisdom asked them a question in response to their question. And he asks his would-be trappers this. What did Moses, verse 3, the one who gave you God's laws and commands, say to you about this? You should already have some wisdom on this matter. And their response here is so interesting. Rather than going back to Moses' teaching and commands in Genesis, or anywhere else in the books of Torah that come from him, they respond simply that Moses said it was okay. He legally permitted it. Verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And this is completely true. This is a good quoting of the Bible. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, documents how Moses allowed this legal practice in Jewish culture in certain circumstances. It says this, a man takes a wife and marries her, but if then she finds no no favour in his eyes because he has found something indecent in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, she departs out of his house. And as a result of this understanding, this was actually widely practiced in the day. If a man had come to find his wife displeasing in some way, or in some way, anyway, indecent, if he saw a more decent version, he would just hand a certificate over to end that contract and would be free to go get a new version of her, an upgrade that pleased him more. And in Jesus' time, some indecency, which is actually quite a hard word to get to the bottom of in the Hebrew text had simply become to mean anything that upset him about his wife. You know, my, my wife, she called me when I was uh, writing this earlier this week to say, Matt, I've forgotten to get the fish out of the fridge for dinner tonight. Do you know, oh, man, that's was a bit indecent of her. I bit, she's on rocky ground, isn't she, by the law? I, I've just noticed I'm not wearing my wedding ring today. That's because I was playing. <laughs> that's because I was playing the cajon. The I did not divorce my wife because of the fish. <laughs> it had become easier. It had become like a mobile phone contract. It's not working for me anymore. Well, there's a better model over there. It, it wasn't everyone's approach. There were other in the Jewish community that were arguing against this, but increasingly influenced by the Romans, the culture they lived in. This approach was getting more and more assent. Divorce was becoming easier and easier, in much the same way it is in our culture. And Jesus' response to their quote is actually, and their practice is really simple. He essentially says, guys, by not looking at Moses' teaching on marriage, not looking at his full teaching on marriage, You have really lost God's heart here. You've let go of God's heart here. And you've forgotten what marriage truly is in your teaching and your practice. And he shows this in two ways. Firstly, by teaching them that the law they've just quoted was not a foundation, but actually a grace concession by God. Verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote to you this command. This command about being able to divorce that God gave them through Moses, he gave them because he is kind and he loves you and he knows the situation we live in because he knows that the fall and sin has warped and hardened our hearts and caused us to fall down in a way that can cause God's true heart for marriage to be seriously broken in us. It was God's great undeserved kindness that led to this command. But it was never God's heart or intention for the marriage relationship because of what marriage truly is. Now, following on from this, if we read together, Jesus takes his his audience back to the very first declaration of what marriage was. Before the fall of man and before the law was necessary, At the very start of creation, he reminds all listening that Moses taught marriage is not a man-made contract, but a creation ordinance of the living God that was always intended to be permanent. And he quotes Genesis 2.24 in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore god has joined together let no man separate for god marriage was never a primarily a legal thing a man made contract between two separate parties that could be ended by a piece of paper that was never his intention in his heart it was a miraculous creation gift and a work of his hands Marriage is where two initially separate people, man and women, are bound together by God for life. I think sometimes when we look at this one flesh phrase here in Genesis, we focus on the thing we do to become one marriage with each other. We focus on us, sex, mutual care, sharing what we have, etc. And this is clearly part of it. But here, Jesus is reminding us that making two into one is not something we primarily do. It's something God does in marriage. Verse 9, God joins them together. Marriage is a gift of his making, a creative work of his hands. It's where the great potter takes two separate lumps of clay and he moulds them together. He entwines them, he mixes them, he puts them, he builds them, he shapes them until, watch this, this is canny, they become something totally new <laughs> for a new purpose. <laughs> the only word he can use to describe this word is one flesh. Two formally separate identities, plans and purposes, directions and callings. He binds them so tightly together for a new exciting Beautiful joint kingdom purposes in him that should be sought out and lived out together from that day of binding and entwining onwards. The, the Pharisees' question and quote had missed this completely. Because they're legal and contractual. Because of their mobile phone view of life. Because of the influence of the Roman world around them. Contract was part of marriage. Legal grace, part of it, but at its heart, marriage was a remarkable, mysterious, and most beautiful work of our great Creator. And the implication of this is so simple in response to the Pharisees' question. Jesus is saying, Look, your starting point is wrong. Look closer at what Moses taught us. When God designed marriage, he designed something that was intended to be totally committed, totally secure. And totally permanent. Where one party would unwaveringly cherish and love the other. As they loved and looked after their own body. Divorce was never part of his heart or purpose. Do you know, in reality, if this is what marriage is, then divorce is this. That was meant to... Hold that in so there's no health and safety implications of what I just did. My wife warned me about that. Again, I've already discussed how I should listen to her. It's a messy, painful, smashing of a beautiful work of his hands. It's not handing back a contract. For God, divorce, re-separating people was like taking your own arm and chopping it off. The Hebrew word word translated divorce is karath. It means to hew or cut off, lopping off a branch from a tree. Divorce, some scholars described, was like chopping off your own legs. It was a totally undesirable thing for God. And so the truth is, he hates it. Malachi 2.16 uses this strong language. It says, I hate divorce because it's horrible and painful and damaging to his creation. You know, marriage was never intended to have a 12.5-year average success rate. It was intended to be a commitment where each party gave up all their former rights to pursue life together, serving one another for a lifetime. And in this way, it was intended to be a picture of the perfect, permanent, incredible, costly, sacrificial way God loves us, His church. Paul shows this when he quotes the same passage that Jesus did in this moment, Ephesians 5:31 to 32 "Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You know, Jesus came down from his father in heaven to give himself completely and eternally to the church. As his beloved bride. He laid down his life in her place, made a home with her. And now he fights for her and protects her and provides for her and leads her as his head, as her head. And he is bound. He has bound his eternal purposes up with her. And you know what? He will never leave her. He will never forsake her. He's never going to chop her off. Instead, he cries out, though the mountains be shaking and their hills be removed, my unfailing love for you will not be shaken and my covenant of peace will not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isaiah 54.10. Jesus' love for his people is not like a mobile phone contract. He will never love us today than throw us away for a shinier model tomorrow. Do you know, if this is your fear in your relationship with God, if you look at your unshininess and you worry, God, will you throw me away? Will you be done with me for a shiny model? Be done with it now. God is not the God of mobile phone contracts. He cherishes you and will never leave you and never forsake you. This morning, if that is your worry, if that is a lie that the devil skewers you with, let it be dead. Because it is not the truth of the matter. This is the good news that through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, he has forever bound himself. Bound himself. You know, the word here in this is covenant, in that passage that I just read out. Covenant's a really important word, it literally means an eternal binding of two things to one that cannot be broken. Where they were formerly two, they're now wound so tightly together that they're one. And he has covenanted himself, bound himself to his church, his bride. And every time he initiates a marriage, he is saying, I'm joining you together to make you into a picture of my love for my people. Cherish this gift. So people can see the powerful effect the freeing effect of having such a securing and binding love in your life. Do you know, I can't get over the brilliance of Jesus' response in this public pressure-trapping question in this moment. It honestly truly astounds me. I think we miss sometimes how great Jesus the man actually was in his brilliance. His incredible self-control and wisdom that I don't possess with questions and observation about the world around him and a deep knowledge of scripture, he not only dodges the risk of being beheaded, but in the space of a few sentences, he gives correction his people need about who God is and what he intended marriage to be. Do you see it? It's incredibly powerful. He sanctifies them. He washes them clean from the culture around them and draws them back to God's heart for it. I find that incredible. What a champion to follow in my life. But in private, at the end here, to his disciples, when some of that pressure's off, this passage for me gets much harder all of a sudden. As Jesus, in his formidable way, goes further than what he has said publicly about the implications of divorce. And he says this, And in his house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Wow, what a verse to contend with if you're really coming under the authority of Scripture. What a verse to contend with. But we must contend with it. It's there. It's written. Here Jesus says that there is a simple equation. Because marriage is the joining of flesh, any divorce followed by a relationship equals adultery. Is this one place where there can be no redemption in God? Doesn't it feel so out of line with the God who washes over all sin, that wonderful God that that Chris C.B. prophesied over, who draws us up from the muck and the mire and seats us in heavenly places? But it it says something that is painful and jarring for us. And as such, this verse has and can be used to heap coals on people who have gone through divorces. Often they're the people who know all too well that divorce is the most painful and tearing apart thing that they and their family have ever had to walk through. Do you know, I personally and in my life know a number of people very well who have been through divorces. And all have reflected what a horribly painful time that was and what it was for them and their family, and how they wish their behaviours had been different. Uh, Even though the event that sticks in my mind was over 30 years ago. They know it's a tearing and painful thing that they've been a part of. And I know Christians who have faithfully tried to build their lives following this have often felt guilt and shame and fear at times that they have moved outside of God's grace and mercy. Because, in part, they truly value these words and are contending with these words and they see God's heart for marriage. You know, and some better theologians than me take these verses and say that under no circumstances is divorce ever permitted. Listen, Mark's whole purpose here is clearly to jar us. It is. Mark loves, in his book, if you'll notice, to leave you stinging with the implications of what he has said. To wake us up, cause us to reflect on our actions and belief and how far culture has overtaken the Bible. He wants to affect us. Just as Jesus wanted to wake the Pharisees up to the truth of what marriage is and the fact that divorce is absolutely condemned and should never be the first port of call. You know, never in the Bible is divorce promoted. Never should it be taken lightly. And the first place we should go should always be to redeem and reconcile and fight tooth and nail for marriages because of what it is. Whether we're married or not. Actually, I'm always struck by the fact that the person with the greatest uh, passion and understanding of marriage was Paul. Some as me and Barry were talking about earlier that he was married, but there's not a great deal of evidence for that. He's probably single and just going about, and he had such an insight into the preciousness of the gift of marriage. But despite this jarring, to come back to my point, I believe that firmly the only way you can say that God shows no mercy and grace and forgiveness in certain divorce circumstances is if you take these verses written in Mark out of the context of the conversation we've just read and out of the wider context of the Bible. And I just want to explain that because it's so important, just quickly. Firstly, as we've already discussed in verses 4 and 5, we've seen that this whole discussion has come in part because the Pharisees have misinterpreted God's grace. He was showing grace. He showed that he showed grace in this moment in allowing legal divorce. They'd made it a foundation, not a mercy, but the mercy was there. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Jesus acknowledged it's there. And he acknowledges it's a mercy because of the broken state of man in certain circumstances. Make sense? With me? Other verses elaborate on this idea of mercy commandments. Matthew documents this very same encounter more fully with the Pharisees and shows that one of the clearest places where God allows this mercy in divorce is where there has been sexual unfaithfulness in the relationship. Matthew 19, verse 9 says, And I say to you, wherever, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries commits adultery. Do you see? There's a, there's a mercy in there. There's a mercy. It doesn't change God's heart. It doesn't change what divorce is, but there's a mercy from God. Paul later writes in 1 Corinthians seven twelve to 16, There is grace and mercy in 6... Situations where one's married to an unbelieving partner and that partner separates and deserts on the grounds of unbelief. There's a mercy. And Exodus 21, 10-11, talks historically about mercy in divorce situations of severe abuse and control, actually. The New Living Translation is really helpful with this. If a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing and sexual intimacy. If he fails in any of these obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making a payment. He gives mercy there. He gives mercy. He's a God of absolute commitment and he's a God of mercy. Where does this leave us today? Where does this leave us? It leaves us here. Our God is and never will be the God of the mobile phone contract. He never will be. He's the God who faithfully binds himself to you for eternity. First and foremost, he wants you to know this without any doubt in your heart. But he also wants us to live out this kind of faithfulness in our relationships He wants his faithfulness and binding to be the foundation and model on which we build our lives. Not disposable contracts, but the faithfulness that the Lord has shown to us. No place is this clearer than in how he created marriage, where he binds two people together to love and serve each other in the same way he has bound himself to the church, his bride. When it comes to marriage... He desperately and never wants us just to fall in line with the culture and the pressures of the culture around us, where marriage is increasingly seen as unnecessary, outdated, just a legal commitment that makes recontracting a little bit harder. He wants us to cherish this gift, whether we're married or not. Love and fight for it fiercely in a way that never gives up on it and understands it is a great creation gift of His. Like he never gives up on his bride, despite how ugly she gets at times. Seek first, but seeks first to always restore. And understands that marriage is a work of his hands. But we must also know that he's the God of mercy and grace. And where marriages have sadly broken through unfaithfulness, abuse, unbelieving desertion, and the couple has not been able to reconcile despite counsel and effort. He invites us to stand in his mercy and grace for that couple in this fallen world and show the love that he displays us as he pours out mercy and forgiveness and love on us, his children, in an unfailing way. Do you know what? I... It is the the greatest news. I know there's a lot in what I've brought you this morning. Uh, Here's some things I would love for you to capture in your heart. I'm just going to pray about. The magnificence of the person of Jesus Christ. Honestly, in this moment, he was magnificent. If we understand that story, we understand how he magnificently responded to that question. And we understand again that he's worthy of our praise. The second most phenomenal thing here is that God has bound himself to to this imperfect group. God has, the holy God, has bound himself to us in unfailing ways where his mercy far outweighs and grace far outweighs, far outweighs what we deserve daily. And he'll never leave you and forsake you. But then there's something to pray about as well. This world... It's got marriage all wrong. It's lost it. Actually, God's given us a a beacon here to shine forth with, to display his gospel love with and truth. I want to pray that God would just help us grasp that again and carry that beacon forward. Is that all right? Living God. Jesus, I firstly want to thank you for who you are. You astound me, Lord God. You amaze me. You captivate me. Lord, help us be more like you in that wisdom that you displayed on earth in that moment. Father God, when we're squeezed, may that amount of wisdom, love, mercy and insight flow out of us as your people, Lord Jesus. As we're filled with your word and grace, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for the example you set. We love you, Lord Jesus. Jesus, God, I want to pray that as a people, Lord God, where there's doubt to your faithfulness comes in us, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus that that would be done away with this morning, that we would recognise what it is that you have eternally covenanted and bound and entwined yourself with us in a new way, Lord God. I want to pray that we would recognise you are not the God of a mobile phone contract, but you are the God of covenantal binding, Lord Jesus, that you love us so much that you'll never leave us or forsake us. And Lord God, I want to pray afresh that we would cherish marriage amongst us in a new way. Lord God, that we would love those who've lived through it with mercy, but that we would cherish that gift, a mighty gift, and that we would put it on display in this world that's forgotten what that gift is. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.